Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm, I'm Matt Terrell, the Dean of the College of Engineering here. And we're here for two days to talk about opportunities for, we're calling it energy efficiency. Uh, a, maybe a broader term that puts it in a slightly different context is energy productivity. And I think... Um, Some words that are in an executive summary of a McKinsey Global uh, Institute uh, report of almost two years ago called Curbing Global Energy Demand put the starting point for this uh, summit meeting in context, and I'm just going to read it. In an era of high oil and gas prices, concerns about CO2 and uncertainty about the security of supply, energy policy has come to dominate political discourse around the world. To date, the energy debate has centered largely on how to secure future energy supply and how to finance research into alternative sources of fuel. While these are important, no energy policy can be complete without a comprehensive understanding of the size of the demand abatement opportunities and how these can be captured in an economically sound way. After all, what's the point of increasing supplies that are destined to be wasted? I think there's some really good news in this, that there's a huge opportunity to contain energy demand in economically attractive ways. They say, and I'm quoting now again briefly, by capturing the potential available from existing technologies with an internal rate of return of 10% or more, we could cut global energy demand growth by half or more over the next 15 years. That's what we're talking about, and there's two important points embedded in this that are very Uh, germane to the current context uh, of the energy discussion in the world. One is focusing uh, as much on the demand side of energy technologies as we do on the supply side. And the other, which is even more pertinent right now, is the coupling with the economy. These are technologies that will create new businesses and create jobs. I, I think a thing that isn't always brought out so well, and of course a a dean of engineering uh, has to emphasize these kind of points, is that uh, many, many, many different kinds of technologies contribute to energy productivity. Some of them don't seem to have anything to do with energy directly at all. Um, And I think the genesis of this Institute for Energy Efficiency here is a good example. It rests on two platforms that UC Santa Barbara has invested in across the board in every department uh, of engineering and many of our science departments, material science and technology and computational science and technology, including control and dynamical systems. And these are things that, on the one hand, lead to technologies for efficient energy conversion based on new materials and lead to technologies for efficient energy use based on advanced control systems and understanding larger-scale systems, dynamics and control and and so on. So I want to emphasize that point, that the thread of this is that um, you don't always know an energy technology when you see it. Um, We are dedicated in this institute to trying to build on these platforms to affect the the situation for energy productivity. So with that context, I, I would like to welcome you all here, encourage you to participate vigorously in, in these two days, and uh, we aim to make them interesting, and we aim to uh, use this as a platform for informing the future work of our institute, but also uh, influencing the course of the energy discussion and the trajectory of energy-related research broadly in the United States.
Thank you. Thank you, Matt. I'm uh, John Bowers, Director of the Institute for Energy Efficiency, and I want to welcome you as, as well. Uh, I think it's going to be a great two days, and uh, I'm really pleased with the strong program that we have. The sessions that you'll see over the next two days are organized by the six focus areas of the Institute, and, and they're listed here. And uh, so we'll start off this morning with a very strong session on, on LEDs and lighting, and as you know, uh, the prospects for reducing our consumption of electricity from lighting of, of a factor of 20 or more. And you'll see a, a very strong set of speakers this morning on that. The second session this morning is on computing. And again, data centers are a huge consumer of electricity. And uh, Fred Chong and, and you know, the first-rate speakers in that group from uh, Google and Microsoft really, I think, highlight where, that, where this field is going and what's important. Uh, the next group is on electronics. Photonics is really internet. Uh, internet is using several percent of our electricity and growing very rapidly. And again, we have uh, sort of the leading speakers from Cisco and, and the University of Melbourne on this topic. In the afternoon, then, uh, Igor Mezek leads a group in buildings. And uh, again, buildings use 70 percent of our electricity, so extremely important area. And uh, again, a strong session. Uh, Michael McQuaid from United Technologies, you know, the, kind of the leader in Carrier and, and others in, in that. And then tomorrow, uh, policy and economics. And, and there's a great set of speakers and a great, uh, and Forrest Sawyer's leading a great roundtable discussion that I hope you'll all make. And then uh, Guy Bazan leads the production and storage area. And again, a very good uh, session. Um, Alan Heger is going to talk about the work that's going on here. Dick Swanson, founder of SunPower, will talk about the work there. So um, I won't go through all the, all the individual speakers because uh, you'll see them, but I'm really pleased that I think we really have the leading companies and the leaders of those companies speaking. And uh, so this is, this is today. And tonight, then, Bill, Bill McDonough is speaking. I hope you'll all come to that. He's the author of Cradle to Cradle and uh, a real forward-thinking person. So... Uh, and then these are the outside speakers we have for tomorrow. But again, uh, not just industry and not just academics, but also a lot of uh, leaders from Washington. Uh, Ray Orbach from the Department of Energy and uh, uh, Lynn Scarlett uh, from the Secretary of the Interior. So as, as I think we've said, the problem that we're all addressing and we all know well is that energy consumption is rising rapidly. And this is causing a lot of problems, one of which is we send a lot of money to the Middle East to pay for that energy. And one general solution is that you can build more power plants and you can build more transmission lines and, and put more carbon in the atmosphere. And as Matt eloquently stated uh, many times, not just today, uh, that has a lot of issues. It has climate change issues. It has economic stress issues, sending money to the Middle East, instability issues as the world runs out of energy. And as people use uh, biofuels, we get food shortages and, and, and instabilities resulting from that. So the issue is, this plot is, is standard living versus electricity usage, and the United States is leading in terms of that electricity usage. And so all the talks, or many of the talks today and tomorrow, will really address this issue of, of how do we change that figure? And how do we not reduce the standard of living, but rather reduce our consumption and pull everybody up this and, and lead the world in a much more uh, stable existence for our, for our society. 
And so uh, you'll see that in, in the LED area, you'll see it in the buildings, you'll see it, see it throughout. Um, the solutions are not to retard development, but rather make devices more efficient. And uh, that's really the focus of our institute, and uh, then supply that fuel with, with renewable energy. And again, you'll see a bunch of these, and that's Alan Heger with the work that he's doing here on, on flexible photovoltaics. So as uh, Henry mentioned, we do have a new Department of Energy Center. I'll just briefly put it here so you can see if, if you haven't seen it before. It's a $19 million grant. Uh, it should start this summer. Uh, one of the good things is it, it brings us into collaboration with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which is one of the real leaders here, and uh, as well as Los Alamos and uh, Santa Cruz and, and Harvard. It's about 20 faculty here, and uh, that's really the strength of the proposal, and, and many of them are here. Uh, Dan Morris and uh, Jean-Marie Tarascon, a real battery leader, um, Claude Weisbluth, Steve Dunbar, and many others. The research is focused in three areas. So it's not the entire institute, but, but a subset of it. And it's primarily photovoltaics is the biggest area. And Alan Heger is leading that effort. Thermoelectrics, led by Art Gossard, um, and solid-state lighting. So it's a five-year grant, and it starts uh, uh, this summer. We do want to thank our sponsors in particular, um, Michael McQuaid from uh, United Technologies and Jack Saul from Southern California Edison, our first two industrial partners for the center. And that's really important to, to link that, and we're looking for lots of collaborations there. In terms of this conference, we want to thank Southern California Edison as a gold sponsor, and uh, thank our media sponsors for uh, highlighting this ahead of time and, and, and afterwards, uh, and so forth. So, uh, without further ado, I want to introduce Dan Colbert, and uh, Dan and the IEEE staff have really been instrumental in pulling this together, so uh, I'm very grateful to Dan. So. All of you for attending. Uh, Chancellor Yang, thank you very much for your leadership. Thanks to Jeff Henley, Dan Burnham, and the other uh, directors, council members of the Institute for Energy Efficiency for their leadership. I'd also like to thank Matt Terrell and John Bowers for their vision for the Institute and launching it uh, in, a, in a way that uh, assured its success, I believe. Also, I'd like to uh, thank Christy Newton and Val Otten and their team in development for their hard work in getting the Institute up and running. Finally, as John alluded to, a conference like this uh, can't uh, succeed without a really talented, hardworking, and dedicated staff, which I'm uh, honored to, uh, to have working with me. So I'd like to mention, and I'll call these names out at the end of the conference as well. Christine Dillard de Herrera, Sajel Hall, Tony Reardon, Peter Allen, Pam Allen, uh, student interns Mike Reese and Charles Bueller for their help. And this could not have happened without the dedicated dedication and hard work of Whitney Wegner, who really led the effort to put this show on. And it's more work than uh, most of you can imagine. So thank you very much, Whitney. So the goal of this summit 
is to bring together stakeholders in energy efficiency in the technology, commercial, and policy areas to share ideas, talk together, uh, brainstorm new solutions. Uh, this discussion will continue. We are going to have this meeting as an annual event, and I look forward to seeing many or most or all of you here in the years to come and continuing this discussion with us. So without further ado, John, I think you'll introduce the, the first speaker. And again, welcome to you all. Thank you for coming. We're very pleased today to have uh, Justin Ratner uh, start this conference off. I've had the pleasure of seeing him speak twice, uh, both at Moscone Center before about 4,000 people in each case. So this is a little smaller audience than maybe he's often used to, but uh, we're very pleased. As you know, Intel obviously is, is the leading manufacturer of microprocessors, and energy efficiency for consuming battery and get, getting longer battery usage has very, been very important. And, and uh, in the talks I've seen him give before, it's been a lot of focus on data centers. And, and uh, so this is something that Intel has been a leader in for a long time. Uh, Justin is the uh, CTO of Intel, reporting to Paul Odellini. He's a senior fellow. Uh, he was named Scientist of the Year by R&D Magazine. He's been named Person of the Week by ABC News. And uh, he's won many other awards, Intel Achievement Awards. And uh, we're very pleased to have you here today. So, Justin Ratner. Is this on? Or do I have to do something? All right, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I'm not the Verizon salesman here. Anyway, well, thank you, John, for that, that introduction. And it's, it's a pleasure um, to be here. It seems like every week I'm opening a new institute. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to. Well, there are a few of you who are my age, so uh, you'll remember this. Uh, para I think my new business card, paraphrasing the old Paladin TV show, is going to say, have PowerPoint, will travel. Wire Justin at Intel.com. <laughs> um, anyway, it is, it's great to be here, and, and I can't think of a more uh, important topic um, to, be, um, to be discussing and, and giving thought to. Um, Intel had its aha moment uh, quite some time ago with respect to, to energy efficiency. Um, and, you know, it took place um, sort of just around the, you know, kind of the turn of the century, an auspicious moment. Um, about 2000, we, um, uh, we were doing some, um, you know, some forecasting, some modeling, and we were looking at the... At the um, uh, increases in, in power consumption of the processors um, over time. Um, and in, I think, February of 2001, um, Pat Gelsinger, an Intel VP, gave the keynote at Solid State Circuits uh, in San Francisco. And he, he put up a now famous slide um, that showed chip temperatures approaching that of the surface of the sun uh, over the coming decade. Uh, well, this was quite an alarming uh, prospect, uh, not just for Intel, but for the, um, for the entire uh, industry. 
Um, I think in some sense the industry got the message sooner than Intel got the message, uh, which is often the case. You know, uh, sometimes the you know the folks inside, you know, oh yeah, nice keynote pat, and then go on about their business. Uh, but um, it was only a couple of years later that we actually canceled, uh, just short of design completion, a major microprocessor, what we call the Tejas processor, uh, because um, you know the power estimates were uh, north of 125 watts, and basically the marketing people came in and said, you know, we can't sell this thing at you know at plus 100 watts. Uh, of power. So, you know, it took a couple of years, I think, before everyone inside realized we had, we had hit the wall. And, and at that point, um, you know, our whole outlook and approach to, to energy efficiency had changed. We had pretty much let uh, energy, uh, you know, fall, uh, uh, you know, where it may, uh, and really focused on driving performance, and in those days, particularly driving uh, clock frequency of the, of the microprocessors. Um, so at that point, uh, things really started to uh, shift gears, and I'll get you into sort of you know all that um, that happened. Um, a few years later, Paul Odellini at an Intel developer forum at the Moscone Center in San Francisco, I think it was fall of 2005, showed this slide or a, a slight variation um, thereof, and he basically said that he had cha challenged the Intel um, uh, research and, and development. Uh, organization to do things, do two things with respect to Intel architecture. Uh, one of them was to drive um, the uh, power requirements down by an order of magnitude, uh, and while holding performance. And uh, the other one was to drive performance up by an order of magnitude um, while holding power constant. Uh, and that was a five-year challenge. You know, basically he said by the end of the decade, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to be here. Um, a year ago, uh, just a little over a year ago, we announced the, the Atom uh, processor family. That's what's illustrated here in the, in the upper left. That's an Atom processor. Um, that's a sub-one-watt uh, processor that's fully Intel-compatible. I don't know if anybody's uh, got a note, uh, netbook with them today, but that's the, the popular processor for, uh, for netbooks. Uh, and we continue to drive energy efficiency just... Um, uh, this week, in fact, we announced the second generation of the Atom family. The platform is called Morristown, um, and one of its features is a 50x reduction in standby power. So we were at the several hundred milliwatt level for standby power in the first generation, and now we're, we're going to be literally in the single-digit uh, milliwatts and standby power in the second generation. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, we wanted to push... Um, performance while holding power constant. And um, we've described um, the new processor that will, that will do that. It's not yet on the, on the market. will be later this year, early next year. That's our Larrabee processor, which will be north of a trillion operations per second, uh, single chip, um, but will have power levels comparable to uh, today's microprocessor. Uh, I happen to have a certain connection to that because one of the things John didn't say in my resume that I worked on the first teraflops machine um, that was installed at um, Sandia National Labs. Um, that machine uh, consumed millions of watts of power and was the size of a house. So to deliver that kind of performance on a single chip uh, is really doing some very uh, clever energy 
management. So we like to think that um, reducing power uh, is a core competency. Uh, some of you may know we refer to our, our processors as cores as we put a number of them on, uh, on a single chip. Um, you know, Moore's law has been tremendously uh, powerful in this respect uh, because the scaling uh, laws that, um, you know, that govern transistor design uh, have given us uh, this remarkable uh, power benefit with each and, and every generation. So since you know, the early days of VLSI or LSI technology and later VLSI uh, technology, we've been on a steady path of uh, reducing uh, the amount of energy per transistor um, and uh, at the same time seeing a significant benefit in terms of, uh, in terms of performance. So we've just literally ridden that, that curve for, um, you know, for roughly the last 40 years, you know, beginning in roughly 19, um, 1968. So we tend to, you know, we tend to think of the, of the technology as, as um, providing the, the primary benefit. Uh, but we're at the point now with respect to the technology that that's no longer um, the case. And in fact, we've had to get much, uh, much smarter uh, if you will, about uh, managing energy at the at the chip uh, level, um, there were predictions. In fact, I mean, if you go back and read um, Intel reports, uh, uh, again, you know, around the the end of the 90s, um, you know, you'll hear people talking about chips running at tens of gigahertz, and you know, so on and and so forth. But uh, in fact, clock frequencies have have pretty much flattened out. Uh, things typically in the three to four gigahertz range. We don't expect big changes uh, in that in the foreseeable future. So we've had to develop other techniques for generating performance uh, as well as very clever techniques for managing power. So I think a good example of what you can, what you can do to address performance and power at the same time uh, in, in microprocessors is illustrated by the new Core i7 processor. This was the processor codenamed Nehalem. And I'm just highlighting a couple of, uh, of, the, um, of the mechanisms, the techniques we've used to, um, to manage power in this design. This is a multi-core processor, and uh, that's the principal technique we've employed for increasing performance while um, holding power uh, more or less uh, constant. Um, among the i7 power features are this, this notion of integrated power gates, so in fact, with every core on that, that processor, we have the ability to gate um, that, uh, that core uh, completely on or completely off. So it's like having a big switch or a circuit breaker on each one of those, uh, those cores. Now you can do it manually under software control. You can say, you know, power up this core, power down uh, that core. Uh, and in fact, there's actually a, a little processor that sits on the die, the power management unit. Uh, that responds to those commands and turns these things um, turns these things on or off. You could also do it automatically, and that's where things get um, get much more interesting. Uh, and it's described in the on the right hand um, side here. Um, the the chip is capable of analyzing its workload and adjusting the number of active processors in response to that workload. So if there's only uh, a single uh, process or thread of execution available, um, the hardware shuts down all the other cores and, um, and gives 
all of the thermal budget to the one active core. And that means you can actually ramp its voltage up uh, and its frequency up and get more performance for that single thread of execution. And it's, it's quite entertaining to watch this on a sort of a dynamic execution monitor as you see uh, the various cores moving through their, their power states, um, completely controlled in hardware. Uh, it would be too inefficient to try to do this in, in software, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in just, uh, in just a moment. So we're moving to uh, literally you know, active, intelligent, smart power management at the die level, at the, at the processor level, uh, in order to continue this process of improving energy uh, efficiency, and there's more to come. Um, when we uh, began to look at this on the, on the research side um, a few years ago and, and you know, trying to um, get a handle on sort of where we should put our, our investment dollar uh, from an uh, energy efficiency point of view, we looked at um, the way power distributes itself across um, the platform um, uh, for a given application. This is just a typical example. This is uh, a mobile office uh, application, so running on a, on a notebook uh, computer. And what you'll see is that the CPU is actually a relatively minor part of the total energy budget. Uh, and, you know, this comes, to, comes as a surprise to, to many folks because the assumption is, oh, it must be the processor that's taking all, all the power. But, in fact, um, we've gotten so good, and I'm not trying to give myself a you know, backhanded compliment here. I mean, we've gotten so good at managing power at the processor level that the other aspects of the platform have really become uh, the, the key targets for uh, improvements in energy efficiency. And even innocuous things like the clock driver is actually a, a significant source of power uh, consumption, voltage regulation. Of course, the display is, uh, is a big one. We don't have a lot of control over display technology at, at Intel. We're not display makers. But it turns out um, that if you look at what it takes to maintain the screen image, there's actually work you can do at the electronics uh, level to, to minimize that. And um, I, don't know if it was, I don't know if it was at the IDF, John, that you were talking about, but um, we, have this, we have this demo um, uh, for what we call self-refresh display, where the display is connected to you know a normal computer. There's just a motherboard, and you you unplug the display from the motherboard, and the display continues to behave normally. And that's because we gave it the ability to self-refresh uh, the image, and that lets everything else in the platform you know go to sleep uh, if in fact there's nothing changing dynamically uh, on the screen. And you know you know as as users and consumers, you know, lots of time you're just staring at the screen, you're reading a web page or something like that, and really the rest of the platform can go to sleep as long as you can maintain uh, the image. The conclusion from all of this is that you've got to look at power and energy efficiency at the platform level. It's no longer sufficient uh, just to consider uh, the processor. Uh, the processor will continue to get better. I mean, as I said, you know, 50x reductions in standby power in the next generation atom. But the, the big opportunities lie at the, at the platform level. And I think that, you know, that's probably a theme you'll hear echoed throughout the, the conference, right? People talk about, you know, looking at things on an end-to-end -end basis. That's, that's taking the platform view as opposed to saying, well, you know, that's the one thing we've got to go fix. So um, this turned into to quite a comprehensive look 
at managing energy uh, across the, the platform. And I think it really uh, does represent a holistic uh, approach in that you know, we looked at it from both a hardware and a software point of view, from both active power management and standby uh, power management, and came up, I think, with a, with a rather uh, clever solution, uh, which we now call converged platform power management. That second generation Atom processor is really the first to sort of fully embody the notion, and that 50x reduction in standby power, I think, says we got something right in that design. You'll see this technology coming into the rest of the Intel processor family over the next uh, few years. So, of course, we continue to work on, on core logic. Uh, as I've said, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at, uh, at power delivery, and power delivery uh, is a target-rich environment, and not just in, uh, in the IT space, but uh, you know, in, in, in other areas, uh, of course, and, and I'll say a little bit more about, uh, about what we're doing in, in power delivery. Um, on the software side, we looked at um, the impact of operating systems and, um, and things like virtual machine uh, monitors. Uh, that doesn't register with you. Uh, if you've got a Macintosh and it's running you know, boot camp or, or, um, or parallels, actually, is what I'm thinking of, uh, you know that you have this idea of, of a virtual machine monitor, which lets you run multiple operating systems. Um, you know, operating systems are kind of a curse in two senses. One, um, most of them uh, expect to um, wake up and run for a short period of time on the order of, let's say, 10 milliseconds. So every 10 milliseconds, system's asleep. It has to power up. The operating system sort of looks around saying, is anything happening? Do I have any input-output I've got to take care of? Uh, any other housekeeping, typically it goes, nope, there's nothing to do, it goes back to sleep. But you've brought the system, you know, more or less to full power and then taken it, you know, back down uh, to sleep. Uh, and, you know, during that interval, however long it is, you know, you're burning, you're burning power. Um, so we, um, we actually took uh, one of the, um, the Linux releases and we modified the operating system and modified the hardware in, in, in some subtle ways to greatly extend that, that sleep interval. And now we routinely uh, can keep the platform asleep for half a second or, or, um, or even longer. So, you know, factors of, uh, you know, 10 and, um, and 20 uh, or more uh, improvement in these sleep intervals just through a redesign of the, of the operating system and, uh, and, and you know, changing um, this, you know, this typical pattern of behavior. And I think most of the, of the major OS vendors, um, you know, are now incorporating uh, this technology. It's actually been in the Mac OS for, uh, for some time. It, Apple was almost there, and, you know, we had a few chats with them, and, and they incorporated uh, those changes, and, and the folks at uh, Redmond are doing, um, are doing the same thing. Um, the hardware changes I alluded to were in the interconnect and, and peripheral area, particularly I.O. interface. The ubiquitous USB uh, interface um, has the nasty requirement, the current version of uh, requiring the processor to wake up uh, to service I.O. events on that, uh, on that interface. And so we, we did a little hardware modification. The next generation of USB will fix that uh, so it won't keep the, keep the platform uh, up so much of the so much of the time. So these small changes actually have big returns uh, 
in, in terms of overall uh, energy efficiency. And then um, manageability, uh, you know, the, the ability of the user, system manager, data center manager, what have you, to really understand what's going on. That's where telemetry plays a role. Uh, you know, how much power is being consumed, what's the temperature level, all of those, uh, those factors. So all of these things were, were addressed in this converged platform power management technology, and uh, I think the benefits will uh, speak for, them, uh, for themselves here over the next few years. Um, let me turn to this, this issue of power delivery, uh, because it's one we've actually spent a fair amount of uh, time on. I uh, wish these were a little sharper, but we were, you know, kind of pasting from, uh, from another presentation. So in the upper left, you see um, what we call coarse grain power management. Uh, what's in red is actually the instantaneous, you know, power demand of the, of the system. Uh, and the green line represents uh, what's actually going on at the, the software level in terms of moving uh, the processor uh, and the platform through various, uh, various energy states. And as you can see, uh, relative to the instantaneous demand, the, the software is moving relatively uh, slowly. What I like to say, if I can get the laser to work, is, you know, is the, you know, is the uh, opportunities for energy savings are really in the margins, right? They're in these, these short intervals. They may literally be only microseconds in duration, but that's where um, that energy um, can be recovered if you can move quickly enough. And what you see in the lower right-hand picture is, is what we call fine-grained power management, where, in fact, we can, we can switch um, the power on and off at a speed which matches the way the instantaneous demand uh, of the system um, is presenting itself. Uh, well, to do that, uh, you, can't, you can't rely on, on software. Software is just too slow, and you don't want to be powering up the system all the time to make the decision of which power state to, um, to be in. So we said, okay, we've got to move from software-controlled power to hardware-controlled power. You saw that. Um, that idea incorporated in the Core i7. It's also in the, in the new uh, Atom processor. But the other thing you need is, is power supplies that can uh, operate at a high enough frequency <clears throat> to actually turn on and turn off at, um, at that speed. And so another thing we went after was um, the design of voltage regulators. Uh, those of you who have built a PC um, you know, at home, um, know that when you look at a PC motherboard, it's just chock full of big, ugly, discrete components, you know, inductors and capacitors, and, you know, you kind of go, wow, you know, I've got this billion transistor microprocessor, and I've still got big caps and inductors sitting on the motherboard. What's going on? Well, those are the voltage regulators, and in fact, the amount of area required for those voltage regulators has increased because the voltage requirements uh, have continued to evolve, and, you know, and, and so more and more VRs populate uh, the motherboard. Uh, we thought this was a great opportunity to apply our, uh, our CMOS technology uh, to, and so we focused on creating this family of uh, what are here called on-package voltage regulators. Uh, in another couple of generations, they'll move on die. The VRs will actually be co-located with, uh, with the rest of the processor uh, cores. We went through a, a couple of iterations on this. This is a Core 2 Duo 
processor, um, our first attempt at this, there's the voltage regulator. Uh, our first attempt at this used um, discrete inductors, very high quality inductors. And if you look at the uh, efficiency figure here, it's, it's 92%. Um, you know, these um, VRs, but instead of operating in the, in the kilohertz, tens, hundreds of kilohertz range, they actually operate in the hundreds of megahertz range. That's what allows us to make those inductors uh, so small. Um, the problem with this, uh, you know, is the, the packaging people weren't too excited about having to put discrete inductors uh, on the, you know, on the package. So the second generation design actually uh, built the inductors into the package. So, you know, the packaging people at Intel were, were thrilled um, by that. They don't, have to, they don't have to mount anything. They don't have yield loss related to installing all those components. We took a, you know, a small hit. We dropped to 88% um, efficiency. But, uh, in fact, we've taken a lot of cost out of the system, and we now have power supplies that can uh, switch at the kinds of speeds that we, re we require to get that fine-grained power management and recover all that energy that's, that's um, today typically lost uh, in, the, in the margins. We also get uh, a nice uh, cost savings here. I think, you know, uh, sort of think in the sort of the 3 to $4 range um, at, the, at the system level. So we actually take some cost out while driving energy efficiency up. Um, another little nasty that, uh, uh, that we came to understand uh, was the fact that um, the power supplies, those silver boxes uh, in your PCs and, and servers, um, are uh, a problem in, them, in themselves in that um, they have reasonable efficiency when the system is running close to maximum uh, load, so you're really, you know, cranking whatever it is uh, in terms of an application. As the load begins to fall off, you discover that the power supply efficiency is actually going downhill, and that's, that's the efficiency curve for a typical conventional silver box kind of, uh, kind of power supply. You get down uh, into the lightly loaded range, and it's not unusual to see uh, efficiencies of the, you know, on the order of 10, 15, maybe, maybe 20 percent. Uh, so we uh, undertook an exercise to uh, modify the sort of traditional power supply architecture to make it more load adaptive, and we give it many, many phases. This shows three phases. I think this design, which is built by Delta, is actually seven phases, but essentially we can maintain uh, efficiency in the power supply uh, over the entire load range of about 80%. So from light load to full load, the power supply remains uh, 80% uh, efficient. And in fact, we don't build power supplies, so we uh, basically made the, the technology, the design know-how available to the, the industry, and, and Delta is one of the, the power supply companies that uh, will now happily sell you um, a load-adaptive uh, power supply. Now, in combination with that um, on-die or on-package voltage regulator, uh, essentially you come out of here at, at 3 volts and you have a single 3-volt rail going into uh, the processor or the chipset, and then all of the unique voltages that are required at the, at the chip level uh, are generated by that, um, that on-die or on-package VR. So um, overall you get a very nice 
simplification um, in the platform design and significant improvement in energy efficiency. Uh, John mentioned data centers. Uh, everybody likes to talk about data centers. This is another case where um, efficient operation requires a, a, um, a total system approach that, you know, holistic uh, view. I think the sort of the key thing to note here uh, is that, um, you know, from the, you know, from the wall to um, the silicon, there's about a 50% loss um, of energy just going through the various levels of power distribution in the, in the data center. Uh, that's really a scary number that we're throwing away half the power before we even get, um, you know, get a single electron to the electronics package. So we, um, we set out to um, work on that. Uh, we actually uh, did this in conjunction with um, DOE, with Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Uh, the conventional uh, power distribution structure in the data center is illustrated here at the top. Uh, the thing to note is all of the conversions, AC to DC, DC back to AC, another AC to AC conversion, and here we go, AC and then DC to DC again to get from, you know, input power at 480 volts to, um, you know, the single rail power uh, at, uh, at 12. What we focused on uh, was coming in at 480, doing one conversion to DC at 400 volts, then going through the UPS, the power distribution system, and into the power supplies all at 400. So really reducing the number of conversions in the, in the data center. Um, get about 7 8% improvement in, in energy efficiency, which in big data centers is a lot. I think when you hear from the folks at, at Google, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get an even clearer sense, but, you know, the operating costs for these big data centers exceed the capital cost. So energy efficiency improvements of that sort get a lot of attention. Again, we've worked with, uh, with the industry, uh, people like Emerson Electric, uh, who uh, build a lot of, uh, of this kind of gear uh, to get this uh, technology standardized and, and into the market. And hopefully we'll, um, we'll start building the future data centers using that. Okay, so, you know, I wanted to give you that, that sort of sweep across, um, you know, the efforts we've had underway at Intel for the last seven or eight years to, to really drive uh, energy efficiency. Um, but, this is a big but, um, no matter how good we are, we're only addressing about 2% of total U.S. energy consumption. IT is really a very tiny part of the total energy equation. It gets a lot of press, uh, and you know, we've got Energy Star stickers and, you know, and all this stuff on, on systems and monitors and, and what have you. But really, uh, if we don't do something uh, about the other 98%, we're gonna be in, in big trouble. I'm, I'm very confident on the IT side that we will have nailed this, this problem over the next uh, few years, so, uh, you know. What do we do? Well, um, you know, if you look at where uh, most of the energy uh, is going. It's going in, in other places. It's going into transportation, general industrial applications, and of course, uh, residential and, and commercial uh, buildings. So, uh, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, well, okay, uh, you know, maybe there's some way to take all this very energy efficient information technology and do something. Uh, about this, um, this problem. 
when you actually look at the data, you, you see both the challenge and the, and the opportunity. Things like transportation really you know, is at the bottom of the list here uh, in terms of the application of, of information uh, technology. Only 3.9% of revenue is spent uh, on information technology in the transportation uh, industries, uh, you know, IT, uh, itself is up at uh, at 6.9. Healthcare, not today's topic, but healthcare is also uh, a very um, a very poor user of information technology. That shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, you know, who's been to a doctor's office or a hospital uh, recently. Uh, you know, we still have people, you know, handwriting these forms, and you know, there's still those big file cabinets uh, in the back of the back of the doctor's office where all the hard copies of uh, your medical history are, are to be found. So, um, again, you know, there's lots of opportunity um, here. And, in fact, uh, I apologize for the, the numbers here in, in euros. Um, but uh, there are, you know, huge business opportunities uh, across motor systems, logistics. Uh, we've uh, been having conversations, you know, with uh, both of the two big uh, folks in the logistics industry, you know, they're, they're really getting excited about uh, how they can deploy IT across their industry, and they're going to do some, I think, some really dramatic stuff uh, in just the next few years. Of course, buildings uh, and the power grid uh, itself. So uh, lots of business opportunity there. You know, I think uh, you know, this notion of smart uh, is really the, the right one. We really, you know, have to look across all of these industries and, and sectors uh, for the, the opportunities to upgrade the, the IT uh, infrastructure. And as a result of those IT infrastructure upgrades, uh, really uh, pull a lot of the energy waste uh, out of, um, of these various um, areas. Uh, just looking at smart energy uh, for one example. Now, this is looking at, um, at the carbon uh, impact. This is you know, global energy emissions measured in gigatons of CO2, about, uh, about 52 gigatons. Um, you know, here's what we, you know, we could impact uh, through the use of, of, um, of information uh, technology. So there's you know, the contribution from the smart grid and then broken down. Uh, into um, its various individual uh, components. So I think the, 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 the big opportunity, the upside, is really to take this wonderfully efficient information technology and apply it uh, in, these other, uh, in these other sectors. Um, the other thing that I think is Im important um, is that there are many cases where even a little IT goes a long way uh, I don't know, this is California, so you probably all own uh, a Prius. If you don't, you're probably going to buy one. Uh, but um, the interesting thing is that that little display on the, on the Prius, as a Prius owner, actually my wife uh, drives a Prius, um, and I always tell people that's because we're after uh, fleet economy in our family. The car I drive is at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, but she drives her Prius, and... Um, one thing you note, and I'm sure if you're a Prius owner, you know this, you pretty much have the energy monitor up all the time. And, you know, and you're always going, hey, you know what's game? Mm, geez, okay. Getting a few more miles per gallon, generating a few more kilowatts here, right? That little display uh, has, in some sense, you know, changed, uh, you know, changed a, a generation, as this, this quote suggests, um, that you know, now 
you know, we have the kids that are growing up paying much more attention to the energy consumption, you know, than to the, the horsepower ratings of the, of the, you know, of the motor. And, and you know, the, this, you know, hypermiling idea, you know, where, where people try to, you know, beat one another in terms of um, their fuel economy, uh, I think really represents, you know, a fundamental change in the way uh, we live our lives on a daily basis. And, you know, this is not particularly high technology, but it's a very nice display, and it gives you the kind of information uh, you need. Um, and, in fact, if we put one of those in every car, you know, we'd see uh, significant improvements. Uh, you know, the one quote here suggests, you know, 20% improvement just through the incorporation of a very little bit of information uh, technology. Um, something that we're working on and many others uh, are, these are the, the folks at, um, at TED, um, is giving uh, you at home the opportunity to understand where the, the energy is going, um, you know, within your home. Uh, and displays like this, uh, you know, will either be on the wall or you'll be able to bring this up on your PC and then your cell phone. Uh, so wherever you are, you'll be able to uh, look and understand um, what, uh, what your energy consumption profile looks like and make informed decisions as a, as a consumer you know, where you want to uh, spend your dollars. I mean, do you want to buy that higher efficiency furnace or replace that that old refrigerator or unplug all the power bricks that are, you know, recharging cell phones and, and laptop uh, computers and, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and I think it's important, you know, not to lose sight of the fact that, that very simple things, simply empowering us as consumers to make intelligent energy choices can have huge impact on that other 98% of the, of the energy consumption that I spoke of. So I think, um, you know, from our view is we, you know, we each have a role to play. At Intel, you know, we're playing the role of making our systems uh, as energy efficient uh, as they can be. It's become, uh, you know, just a way of life for us at Intel. Uh, it's the way that our customers approach us uh, when they're looking for products or, you know, the first word out of their mouth is energy. Uh, and we've, I think we've responded to that as any other business would, uh, would respond to it. And I think now uh, the mantle has to be picked up uh, across, you know, all of these other industries that I, that I spoke of. Uh, and I think the, the promise and the potential for the kind of improvement, improvements we've seen on the IT side are, are really there. And I hope that, you know, throughout the, the conference uh, you'll give thought uh, to some of these ideas, particularly the idea of empowering uh, consumers uh, and lead us to a brighter energy future. Thanks very much. Do you see then, you've even su suggested it, that one of the strategies is to try to make the consumer more aware of your product's power consumption. So when you walk up to the counter at Fry's Electronics, the customer can say, oh, I'll save $7 per month with this product and not that product. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is a little bit like your dashboard, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. uh, just getting it out there so it becomes a, a marketing plus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this, I mean, I, the, there's, there's more to empowering the consumer than just putting a, you know, a nice display. I mean, I literally think, you know, we, we need to get to the point where people walk into the Home Depot, not to fries, right? 
and, and, you know, and say, hey, you know, I'll pay X, right, if you're going to give me this kind of, this kind of energy return, right? I, I think, you know, um, it, it has, I mean, literally, it, it has to be a consumer decision. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't know about your Home Depot. I walked into mine and I said, solar panel, right? They kind of looked at me like, what's he talking about? Solar panel. I want to walk into my Home Depot and buy a solar panel and buy the, you know, the control system. Uh, to do that, and, and we've got to get to that that point, uh, I think, you know, soon. I'm sorry. Exactly. Right, and and when you see it on the monitor, you know, you roll in the new fridge, and all of a sudden, whoop, you know, the refrigerator is now, you know, you know, you can easily justify that. A very impressive uh, presentation, exciting actually. My question is more on the business side as CTO and um, when you look at these dollars you've spent for R&D, um, is there, the payback obviously is probably market share and maintaining growing market share. Is there any cost reduction and, and how do you look at it from kind of the business economic side? Uh, is that, I mean, is that a factor in what you, drives the well, R&D Well, are you talking about Cost reduction from from well, our product point of view. Yeah, with the improvement of the uh, power, uh, you know, power productions um, and energy efficiencies. You know, is it we, driven at all by? Yeah, I mean, I th I, th I think um, you know it, sometimes it's it's what we call share of wallet. Uh, you know, so since we don't have on die or on package voltage regulators today, you know, we don't get those dollars at the at the platform level. The voltage regulator manufacturers get those things. So by you know by investing, paying attention to the energy efficiency thing, we we open you know we're able to capture more of the you know of the of the customer's dollar for uh, for our technology. Um, you know there are other um, efficiencies that you know relate to um, how this stuff you know how expensive it is to build in the in the factory. So some of the um, these um, uh, these fault tolerant mechanisms I was mentioning in, in response to John's question are are like that. So they improve you know they improve our product yield and therefore lower our uh, our you know our product um, our product costs. So uh, we do see it. I you know I don't I don't think it's a you know I don't think it's a you know Richter eight kind of uh, kind of opportunity. It, it is in in other businesses. I don't I don't think that's really true in our business. There's one more, and then we'll pull the plug. Just when you thought you were done. <laughs> um, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, just finish off on Microsoft. I think the, uh, I mean, the great opportunity is really in the collaboration between software and hardware. Uh, side of the things to ne to get the next uh, 10 or 100x uh, power savings. As you actually have alluded that uh, some of these really interesting uh, power profiles of these apps that could be really exploited in exploiting some of the hardware capabilities you were talking about, but also make it an OS and a bunch of other things uh, much more intelligent. Actually, the, uh, my question uh, is really on, you, know, you, you talked about uh, a lot of things from the industrial world, in particular in the U.S., and I think that uh, for the rest of the world, in particular in the developing countries, um, as India and China and the mm -hmm. rest of the part, really catching up in the U.S. in terms of the energy consumption per capita, I think the opportunities there is actually huge, and I wonder if you have thoughts. Uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and in fact, um, 
you know, if you, if you look at what China is doing in the transportation sector, um, I, I think they're, they're well positioned to leap ahead, uh, to borrow an Intel tagline. Um, you know, the, the, the IT infrastructure, which will support this new generation, of, you know, of, of the Chinese railway system, will, I think, you know, bring them at least to par, if not put them ahead of the rest of the the rest of the world, and, and, and we see that kind of opportunity, uh, you know, not just in China, but, but elsewhere, that um, you know, you, in, in, in those societies, those economies, you, you have the opportunity to do more of a clean, kind of a clean sheet approach, and you can put the best technology uh, in place at, you know, at day one. So um, I think when, you know, when we look at the global business opportunity, um, you know, we see at least as great an opportunity outside the U.S. As we, as we see inside the U.S. All right, thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.